Teaching Abroad Pod. Hello, listener. Thank you so much for joining us on this latest edition of the Teaching Abroad Pod. We discuss all things related to teaching, living, traveling, and generally just loving your life overseas. I'm co-hosting this week, and with me will be my colleague, Lucas LaPlante from the Oxford Seminars Job Placement Service. Lucas, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. I'm excited to hear your stories about teaching in Japan this week. How long were you there for? Um, Almost 11 years. Wow. And uh, you worked in a number of different schools and locations? I think overall, maybe dozens of different places, yeah. You're definitely a resident Japan expert. After all that time, I hope so. So do you want to give the listeners a sense of a couple of the topics we're going to talk about this week? Um, Sure. So I just wanted to go over some of the um, different working environments in Japan, since I did get a sample of a few of those, like what you can expect and uh, comparing a few different options, as well as some fun stuff like uh, food and uh, things like that. Okay, I can't wait. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode, the interview with Mm -hmm. Lucas LaPlante. So this week, I'll be talking to my colleague at Oxford Seminars, Lucas LaPlante. He's currently a job placement advisor and previously spent over 10 years teaching in Japan. And that's what we're here to talk about today. So let's dive right into it. Luke, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So uh, first question about teaching in Japan. What are some of the options for work and what do we offer through Oxford Seminars? Uh, So overall, there's two main ESL options. So there's public schools and private schools. So with the public schools, they're mainly served by the JET program, which you might have heard of. Uh, It's run by the government of Japan. It's this huge program. It's running for 30 years. And they include most elementary, junior high, and senior high schools. Kindergartens are generally separate and privately run, but there are some public schools that have kindergartens like affiliated with them. So JETs would go in those as well. Um, So we don't work with JET directly, uh, but because I'm a two-time JET participant, I'm happy to help people with any advice if they're looking to apply and I can help walk them through the process. So um, you have the public schools, some of them hire teachers through um, dispatch companies. So this is a little different. They're generally cheaper to hire from dispatch companies. So these teachers, they do the same job as JETS, more or less, but because they get these jobs through the dispatch companies, the company takes a portion of your pay. So I'd recommend trying to get jobs directly if you can. Um, I work for a dispatch company after JET. They help you a little bit less than JET in terms of support and training. You get paid a little bit less, there's fewer benefits, and there's not really any job security. So with JET, you can stay up to five years if you want, but dispatch companies, they have to bid every year to see if they're going to get the contract. And if they lose the bid, then you don't have a job for the next year. So you're just out of luck. Um, Public schools are your best option. Um, Dispatch companies are probably your worst Uh, And then there's private institutions, which is a whole other thing. They have their own curriculum to public schools, but they're paid by tuition fees, sort of like in North America, if you go to a private school. So I worked for one of these. It was a Catholic school. Uh, It was a good experience. They offer salaries that can be higher. So it's worth considering. Some of our partners do have contracts with private schools. The teachers do tend to stay in those positions for a long time, though. So getting into them can be um, a little tricky. And then there's another category, the Eikaiwas. So these are like English conversation schools, and they have uh, private learning facilities. So I don't know if you've uh, heard about Kumon before. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So we have those in North America, but they're actually originally Japanese. They're mm-hmm. like um, after school learning facilities, essentially. So I worked in one of those for about two years and it was generally positive. So these are the majority of the jobs offered in Japan through Oxford is with these Akaiwa schools. They're going to be a little different than a traditional school. So my working day, for example, it used to start around noon, which is pretty sweet. But uh, I also ended up finishing around nine or ten. The pay tends to be comparable to public schools, but because they are not publicly funded, they do have to worry about their bottom line. And so um, they may not pay you quite as much. So that's the, that's the general overview of all the different options. Right. So it sounds like there's some different sort of pros and cons to each and also difference in the sort of working day structure. Mm-hmm. So what are some of those pros and cons and what's an average day like in each type of job? Okay, well, as I said, JET is the gold standard. So um, there's lots of pros in terms of pay, benefits, job security, great community, and so on. Um, the con is that they do expect you to work for all of that. You uh, have really a lot to do in a lot of days. It depends on where you are, and every school is different, of course. I used to teach about three to four classes a day in some of my bigger schools. Uh, but if you're in a smaller school, you may only have to teach one class a day, or there might be some days where you teach none and you just do planning all day. So the challenge, if you have none, you have to keep busy. So uh, I would usually prepare new lessons uh, and activities and work on my Japanese. The flip side is the dispatch companies. So it's more con than pro there, in my opinion. Fewer benefits, lower salary, job security is not so great. Uh, the workload is essentially the same as JET or higher in some cases but uh, I would put these at the bottom of the list probably. Pro for them would probably be that they can find you work quickly, um, but that's more due to their high turnover rates. Private schools are basically like on par with JET, so they offer sometimes even higher salaries and better benefits in some cases. The cons that they're few and far between, they're very competitive, and thus not a great option for people who are new to ESL. Also, given that they operate independently of JET, you'd miss out on that expat community. So you'd have to just go out and make your own friends. But if, you know, you're a sociable person, it's not so bad. And uh, Akaiwas are a good compromise. So they offer fair salaries, reasonably good benefits, and they tend to offer support for their staff in terms of visa processing and housing and that sort of thing. The con to keep in mind is that they are profit driven. So this means you have to get butts in seats for classes. And you might be asked to teach more often and also to bigger classes sometimes. You also sometimes have to work on the weekends occasionally, but they will give you usually like a weekday off uh, to compensate for that. So if you're flexible, I mean, it is a good uh, foot in the door type of job for Japan. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know that even though Oxford Seminars isn't directly affiliated with the JET program, it's definitely one of the most popular, desirable programs. And I think a lot of teachers, you know, look to the public schools programs as they feel they're a bit more structure there, a bit more consistency, maybe a bit more transparency, or they feel a bit more confident. Um, Mm -hmm. So in terms of JET, can you tell us a bit about the application procedure, what that's like? Um, Yeah, for sure. So um, the process is a long one. Um, You do have to have the timeline straight and plan ahead. So JET applications open in uh, September, and they have a submission deadline in mid-November. So you want to start getting all the required materials ready beforehand and have them on hand by early September just to be safe um, because they are quite strict. And if you miss the the deadline in November, that's it. You have to reapply uh, the next year. So uh, following that, the application results are uh, released around January. And then they start doing interviews through January and February. And then uh, from March through April, um, they'll let the people know the results of the interviews and if you get in. 
and then you'll find out where you're going sometime around May, usually. Um, so in June and July, um, you do have these preparatory training sessions, and then the departure for the main group is in late July or early August. So sometimes they do have a special intake for the spring semester, and that would be in April. Uh, this is for cases where a teacher needs to be replaced quickly, like if they had to go back home for whatever reason, unexpectedly or something like that. And so these people are often asked to leave kind of on short notice once the interviews are complete. But uh, this is probably like a, maybe a fifth or less of the total JET participants. I know that just talking about applying to Japan in general, um, it's a very competitive because it's such a desirable sought after ESL market, maybe one of the most popular in the world. So in terms of just helping people be successful in their job applications, from your own experience, do you have any tips, things that you think people should or shouldn't do in their application to be more, more successful? Like I know a lot of our contacts really want teachers to express like a specific interest in Japan. They really want to see that mm. Japan is like top of their list and they have a real reason for applying. Yeah, that's a big one. I mean, showing some sort of cultural awareness is really helpful. It's helpful in the application process as well as like when you're actually on the ground in Japan. So if you do have like that, that interest in Japanese culture, then people will kind of like like you right away because, you know, right. like if you show that you're interested in their culture, they're going to want to share it with you. And it just makes for a more interesting experience. Mm -hmm. There is some benefit to knowing a little bit of Japanese. Like they do ask you in the JET applications if you speak any, and they'll throw a few Japanese questions your way to try and gauge your level. Um, but it's not a requirement of the job. Um, it just makes daily life easier if you happen to know a bit. I mean, when I went, I knew zero. So I was learning from scratch. It's possible, possible to do. Uh, it just, it was, you know, a tricky first year adjusting. With Oxford Seminars, starting your new career teaching ESL couldn't be easier. Oxford Seminars has trained more than 70,000 teachers over the past 20 years, and you could be next. Their comprehensive 120-hour program starts with live instruction from an experienced ESL teacher, followed by convenient online modules. If your goal is to relocate overseas or even teach from the comfort of your own home, Oxford Seminars' renowned lifetime job placement service will get you where you want to be. Right now, you can get $50 off your Oxford Seminars TESOL TASOL TAFL course price when paying in full by calling 1-800-779-1779 and giving the code TEACHINGABROADPOD. Visit OxfordSeminars.com today to find out more. So I guess in terms of that adjustment and, you know, getting there and, and getting used to living in Japan, another big question that a lot of teachers have is about the housing. You mm -hmm. know, what are some of the different options, different housing types, and what sort of conditions did you uh, yourself experience while you were living there? It's different with every uh, employer and every situation. <clears throat> so when I uh, first arrived on JET uh, way back in 2005, I was provided with a furnished apartment as soon as I got there. And this is typical for most JETs, I think. Um, they often just set you up with whatever apartment is left by your predecessor, and you'd often have to pay your predecessor for the furnishings in the apartment if you want those furnishings, because otherwise they'd be within their rights to just sell all their stuff before you got there, and then you'd have to go out and buy everything, probably twice the price. Um, you do have to pay for your apartment in Japan in most cases. Um, it's rare that an employer will pay for your apartment, but they do tend to pay you a bit more in your, your salary just to sort of help uh, balance that out. 
So another option I experienced is uh, teacher's housing. So this is something that's maybe maybe more unique to Japan. Teachers in Japan, they get shuffled around quite a bit. And because of that, the Board of Education tends to maintain these special housing units just for teachers. The rent is usually fixed at a very low rate, and uh, sometimes these are available for jets. So when I lived in one of these places, my rent was a quarter of what I was paying elsewhere. Um, so the downside is that it was a bit old. It was a bit of a roach motel, but um, they're probably not all like that. Um, sometimes you can ask for that option if it's available. Um, it's worth keeping in mind, and it would really help you save money. And then finally, if you, you may want to or have to find a place of your own, um, so a good option for many is uh, like a rental unit with a big company like Leo Palace. This is one of the main ones in Japan. Uh, they maintain units all over the country. Um, I lived in one myself. Sometimes these are furnished, sometimes not, but they usually have uh, basic things like a range, a washing machine, a TV, and um, they usually charge a reasonable rate. They don't charge key money, which uh, I did talk about in an earlier blog, if you're curious about that. And uh, there is a deposit, but it's usually nothing more than what you would pay in North America. So it's like usually a month's rent. Also, there's one thing you might want to consider. So if you do get like a, a really rural placement, you might even get an entire house to yourself. So that's one benefit of working in the countryside. Uh, there's many houses that are left abandoned because the population is decreasing in Japan and a lot of people are migrating big cities. So uh, teachers who work in the countryside, they can find that their school will just snatch one of these abandoned houses up and uh, keep it on hand for their resident teacher. So it's a lot to maintain uh, and keep clean, but it's great if you like to host parties. In terms of that, uh, like the size of the apartments that you lived in in Japan, were, were most of them, would you consider them small apartments by North American standards or? Um, it was kind of a mixed bag. Like the first one I had in um, Oita Prefecture, um, that one was like pretty good. It was a four unit apartment complex and each unit was like a fairly good size, like a good kitchen, good bedroom, a living room and bathroom and everything like, you know, very good size. Like even a small family could probably be comfortable in there. Yeah. Um, the one in Okinawa too, similarly, was like plenty for one person uh, before me, like my predecessor was living there with his wife and daughter. Although the one that I lived in in Fukuoka was a little smaller. Um, it was pretty much more like typical of what you might expect in Japan, like a little shoebox, but you know, it had all the amenities, so it was still fine. Oh. And Sorry, if you do go to a big city like Tokyo or something like that, like, yeah, there's more to do, but you will be living in a shoebox, I guarantee yeah, that's what I was wondering about. And mm -hmm. in terms of like the big city versus countryside comparison, uh, what other factors are there to consider in that? Um, so, sorry, the, the city versus the country? Yeah. I really did enjoy the, the smaller city compared to the urban area. Like I did both. It depends on your personality, I think. So if you're really into like a vibrant nightlife, um, then you might want to go to the big city. If you're more of a homebody, maybe the country is better for you. As long as you're not too far out in the middle of nowhere and there's still certain conveniences around, um, I think the countryside has a lot to offer. Like it's very quiet. The people are really friendly. You can have a really beautiful view. Like you open your door every morning and it's these stunning vistas uh, with clean air and the fresh food and you know everything's really cheap. So, I mean, the city was better for socializing, but um, that's, that's something I enjoyed more like in my twenties. All the, all the other stuff became more important to me in my 30s, just like enjoying where I lived.
Yeah, I always think about all the fresh teachers, new teachers want to go to the biggest city. Mm -hmm. And then as you as you get older and get a little bit tired of that big city grind, you start to spread out into the smaller towns and the smaller, more relaxed uh, settings. Yeah, like I had a good compromise, I think, in Okinawa because it was not like super small. It was about 50,000 people where I was living. But I mean, that's like small for Japan, but it still had all the conveniences and I really enjoyed it. So yeah, I'd recommend something like that. Keep an open mind to it anyway. Yeah, when I taught in Taiwan, I taught on Pungu, which is a little island off Taiwan. And Taiwan itself mm. isn't a huge island. So mm. this is a tiny little island off an island. Um, mm. But I loved it. It was just so relaxed, laid back and you know, you could fly to Taipei, it was just a short 40 minute mm. flight. So it was kind of like you could get to the city and do shopping and come back the same day if you wanted to. And you got to live mm. in this really nice place with beautiful beaches and fresh air. And mm. it was great. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people envision when they think about, oh, I want to go and teach in a foreign country. Like that's kind of the lifestyle I think that a lot of people are, are maybe looking for. So yeah, there's like lots of jobs in the big city. And if that's really your thing, go for it. But yeah, the countryside is um, definitely a good option too. And so comparing, uh, you worked in both mainland Japan and in Okinawa, which was your favorite and were they really different? Um, so I have to say my heart is always going to be in Okinawa. Uh, I loved it. I really loved my, my mainland experience as well, like in Oita, Fukuoka, but um, Okinawa is just so unique, like their culture there. It's totally different. Uh, it's very engaging. It's very beautiful. Um, so I just totally fell in love with it. And it's very laid back compared to the rest of Japan. It's like that island kind of lifestyle. And that very much fit with my personality. So uh, I really did like it. It's just really unique, like the culture and the food. And um, it's like a different world. So if, you, if you're interested in Japan, I recommend like, like you at least visit it. It's worth it. I guess uh, we can't talk about Japan without talking about some of the great reasons that make it such a popular destination in addition to the teaching. And I think food is definitely a big one for a lot of people. Um, do you have any top uh, picks you'd recommend in terms of Japanese dishes, stuff to try? Uh, yeah, do I ever. Okay, so first of all, uh, if you're ever on Miyakojima in Okinawa, that's where I was, you need to go to this little restaurant called Pizza Toraku. I'm gonna give them a free plug because we went there every Friday night and they have great pizza. Um, and the owner was really great. He loves hanging out with all the uh, ESL teachers that go there. Uh, that being said, in general, um, I also was very partial to um, authentic ramen in Japan. That was one of my favorite things, particularly with uh, nice miso or shoyu broth like uh, soy sauce. So in Okinawa, there's also a type of seaweed that I really liked called umibudo or sea grapes, which is uh, surprisingly delicious. So try those if you get a chance. And uh, if you're a meat eater, they have this marinated pork belly, which was amazing. A um, bit of a heart attack on a plate, but really, really good. Mm. Let's see other foods. Probably the perfect and expensive fruits that they have in the markets would be good to try. Those are pretty well known. Um, they have seasonal snacks like uh, plums and cherries, uh, chestnuts, persimmons. Those are all good. I've had those for sure. And they have this thing called uh, tabehodai, which means all you can eat. Those are really good. Um, or nomihodai, which is all you can drink. I mean, I'm sure if you're teaching in Japan, those terms will come up. So since we still got a little bit of time left, let's talk about some of our other favorite topics a little bit. Uh, travel and money. Let's start with money. I think the money is a big factor when deciding where to go to teach mm. overseas. And the salaries in Japan have historically been very competitive. And it's been one of the big 
draw uh, factors drawing people to Japan. So what was mm. it like in your experience? Like how much were you able to sort of save per mm. month? And, and uh, did you find it difficult to save? Was the cost of living pretty high? Um, yeah, the cost of living is higher in Japan because it's an island. They have to ship everything in, but they do pay you fairly well. Um, they have a good economy in Japan. So the salaries are fairly competitive. I'd say like in Asia, it's usually like China, Korea, Japan in terms of pay. So yeah, they give you enough that you can save. I paid off pretty much all of my student debt after university while I was teaching in Japan. And if you happen to be on jet, they do give you um, a raise every year. They want you to uh, stay so they can retain your experience. And most places you'd work or do something similar. So if you're gonna stay for a while, you can definitely like have a comfortable living, I would say. And did you find that you could save more uh outside of the big cities was that a factor at all yeah like especially uh like i said if you get the teacher's housing that's a huge plus but i don't know if, if that's an option like if you're not in uh like a government job then that's probably not an option for you but your school might have an apartment that they keep that's cheap or something like that so if that's the case usually you can save a fair amount um, even in a city with the salary that you get and how about like eating out? Uh, is it expensive to eat out? Was that something that was pretty rare or was it sort of a mm. once a week thing? We were mostly cooking at home and then occasionally going out with friends. Mm, no, eating out in Japan is actually uh, really affordable. It's one of the most affordable parts of living in Japan, really. Um, it's just this whole culture that they they have like people eat out you know multiple times a week it's quite affordable um i would eat out like maybe two three times a week sometimes but um, usually just for convenience i would stay home and cook for myself but um yeah it's, it's definitely worth getting out and enjoying it because the food there is just amazing and what about travel um is it expensive to travel around do teachers typically mm -hmm. take side trips uh in japan on vacation or on weekends uh what was your experience like? How much travel did you get out and do? Um, I traveled quite a bit. The first time I was there, um, I had a, a friend who always liked to go out on weekend trips and we would just drive to, you know, whatever little town we felt like going to or take a train somewhere. And uh, I ended up seeing pretty much like all of Southern Japan. So it's really not hard. Like the, the transportation system in Japan is modern and efficient and just totally easy to get anywhere so yeah you should travel if you're there do you have any spots you'd recommend i know you don't want to blow up your secret spots but do you have any mm. favorite oh i mean the, a lot of the spots i went to are pretty busy anyway so you might as well check them out um mm -hmm. definitely go to kyoto that's a, a beautiful beautiful spot with lots of cultural heritage tokyo of course like everyone should see that at least once but um i i went to kobe and hiroshima they were both good i'd recommend those just like the little countryside villages, I found that like if you stop in and there happens to be a festival or something going on, those are really cool to, to check out as well. And like every little town has their own festivals and stuff worth checking out. Um, Okinawa, of course, you should totally go to if you go to Japan. And Fukuoka, that was good. Like I lived in kind of the outskirts of Fukuoka, but Fukuoka City was one of the best places that you can go to like in the south. They have lots to do. I like Miyazaki, actually, just south of Oita, because they have really good beaches. I went surfing there a couple of times. And I guess last couple of questions about language. So you mentioned mm -hmm. that when you first arrived in Japan, you didn't speak too much Japanese, it's just a mm -hmm. little tiny bit. Yep. Uh, so what was it like? Was it hard at first to get around to navigate, like travel, uh, even simple stuff like ordering food and things like that? Yeah, it could be because... Um, 
although it's becoming more English friendly across Japan, especially in like bigger cities, in the countryside, everything is in kanji. And so it's um, kind of hard if you don't speak any Japanese at all, uh, it's difficult to navigate, you know, if you're traveling around sometimes. So um, if you can at least speak a few key phrases, that's really important, I think. If you can start learning some kanji as well, like at least the basic ones, it would uh, definitely help you out. And so what was your learning curve like with Japanese? You were there for over 10 years. Did it take quite a few years before you started to feel, you know, relatively fluent or what was the process like? Um, well, I took the JET course when I first arrived, the basic course, and that was really helpful in kind of like learning the basics of the alphabet. Like you can learn hiragana and katakana. Those are phonetic alphabets pretty quickly. I learned those within the first year. It's the kanji that are hard. So that's like probably two to 3,000 kanji you would need for daily use, like for reading a newspaper. Um, if you can get to that point, then you'd be much more comfortable in Japan and be able to navigate really well. Um, but after 10 years, I know probably 500 kanji. So it, it is like a very <laughs> slow, methodical process picking up Japanese. But I feel like conversationally, I'm quite capable now. Like uh, I can have a conversation with a Japanese person. And as long as they don't go into like esoteric topics or something like that, I can pretty much communicate pretty well. You must really miss it. What's what's something that you miss most or a couple of things that you miss most about, about Japan? Oh, man. Um, well, some ideas I would say would be seeing mountains in the distance wherever I went. That was a big one for me. I, I don't have that here where I live, so that was kind of cool. Uh, the ocean as well, seeing that all the time. Another thing that I don't have here. There's a lot of things like um, having guest slippers when you go to someone's house, you know, just... Uh, a lot of different little things like that. Um, the culture, you know, I totally do miss the politeness of the people and how friendly everyone is. Okay, so I guess we'll ask the final question to you, even though we've probably asked you it before, but the final question is usually if you have any advice for anybody thinking of getting started with this adventure, teaching English overseas. And I guess I'd like to add maybe to that, if you have any suggestions or tips for people in terms of ways to succeed in that adventure like you did where you didn't just try it for one year and then decide you didn't like it you actually embraced it and it became a major part of your life so any tips mm -hmm. or suggestions for people on how to sort of embrace the adventure and, and, and make it something that is really impactful for them um, I think finding uh, a good match for like what your interests are in terms of the country that you're going to go to helps a lot because um, I had experience with Japan like for a long time because I took martial arts and I got an introduction to the culture that way. So when I moved there, it just made it that much more interesting for me. So if you do a little background work, research in the countries that you, you think you might be interested in and kind of cultivate that interest before you go and learn about the country. So it's not all like a shock to you when you first arrive. That really does help. Yeah, just keep an open mind. Like um, the first time I went, I just tried to say yes to everything that was asked of me and just like tried to do as much as I could. And it made for an amazing experience. So I totally recommend doing that. Great. Well, your wealth of knowledge about teaching in Japan. And uh, thanks for taking the time to share some of that with us today. Sure, no problem. Thank you for tuning in to the Teaching Abroad pod, and be sure to check in every few weeks for new episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to hit like and subscribe down below. Also, consider sharing with your friends, especially if they're thinking of teaching overseas. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other popular podcasting spots. If you have any ideas you'd like for us to discuss on upcoming episodes, you can leave them in the comments section on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or you can email them to us 
at teachingabroadpod at oxfordseminars.com. Many thanks to Alex for hosting today's episode, and I hope you Japanophiles out there found something useful. Now for a quick JPS update. For Japan, we have many Eikaiwa positions available through our contacts, which are a great foot in the door. We're also seeing China reopen its borders for foreign ESL teachers, and many of these jobs offer fantastic salaries, so worth checking out. Both of these have rather long application processes, so it's good to apply about six months prior to when you want to go. Colombia is also looking for qualified ESL teachers, if Latin America is more your style. Their application process is a bit shorter, so if you're interested in the fall, this might be for you. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next time.